Well, when I preach, I'm always very aware that there are typically four kinds of people to whom I'm preaching. The first is strong Christians who are thriving and growing. And I want every sermon to be helpful and encouraging to keep thriving and keep growing and keep going in that direction. I'm also very aware that every time I preach, there are Christians who are deeply struggling in some sort of pit, either because of circumstances foisted upon you or because of a pit you've dug for yourself, there can be profound struggle in the Christian life. Just because you're a child of God doesn't mean the struggles are over by any stretch. I'm also aware of two other kinds of people. One of them are people who are here who are not Christians and know it. And I'm so grateful you're here, if that describes you. Maybe you've come with a friend or family member around holiday time. You've come to visit, and you know they go to church, and so you go along with them politely. And I'm really glad you're here. I'm deeply thankful you're here, and I pray God will work in your life in unmistakable ways. But then there's a fourth kind of person that I'm always aware of as well. And it's someone who thinks they're a Christian, but isn't. Remember we preached through the Gospel of Luke many years ago, as we're doing now, and it was amazing and stunning how often Jesus would have confrontations with people who, were thought, who thought they were doing really well in their relationships with God. Very religious people. Very often, they weren't even just religious people. They were religious leaders. That's usually actually who it was. And Jesus had his most difficult confrontations with those people. People who thought they were doing just fine with God and weren't. And it was amazing to me how the response was all the time. When Jesus would say, I've looked at you and I realize that although you think you're doing just fine in your relationship with God, you're not. You're not part of the kingdom. You're not one of my people. And do you know what those people in the Bible never say? Busted. Busted. He, you know, I wondered how long it was going to be before he called my bluff. You know what else they never say? You know, I was worrying about that myself. I was really concerned that my life wasn't reflective of who I'm really supposed to be as one of God's people. That sort of humble, teachable perspective is not the response of nice religious people who think they're doing fine who aren't. It's the opposite. You know what it is? How dare you question my veracity? In my relationship with you. How dare you? Have you any idea who I am? I'm a child of Abraham is what they'd say. They'd say, I'm, I, I got my act together. I've kept every one of those commandments. How dare you question my legitimacy? It was arrogance. It wasn't a teachable heart. It wasn't a humble heart. That's why every time uh, somebody comes to me and, and says, you know, I'm really struggling with, with this sin I continue to battle in my life, and I know it's not reflective of how a Christian should be. And I, I just, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if I'm real. I'm, I'm usually pretty easily inclined to give them assurance and affirmation in those moments because that response is so different than the nice religious people who think they've got it all figured out. 
This morning's passage in Luke chapter 6 is addressed to that kind of person. And I've realized that the most difficult and deeply embedded kind of deception is self-deception. It's when we ourselves are deceived and we get really good at feeding that self-deception. The name of our church is Grace. And the Christian faith is a faith by grace in Christ who's done it all for us. And that is a necessary, central reality of our lives. That's what radically separates the Christian life from every other kind of life. I, I was in Dallas this week and this amazing guy I got to meet that was an incredible, incredible divine orchestra, divinely orchestrated encounter. I think I was able to lead this man to Christ in, in the car as he drove me to the, the airport. And, and it was amazing to, to hear how he had been immersed in Bible Belt Christianity for, for his whole adult life. And he didn't understand the gospel. He, he didn't understand the gospel. Uh, and at one point I said to him, you know the difference between the, the Christian faith and every other religion in the world? Every other religion in the world is what we do to please God. And the Christian faith is what God has done to forgive us, to provide for us. And he, he slowed down and he, he adjusted his rearview mirror so he could see me really well. And he said, say that again. Say that again. I've never heard that before. Been listening to preachers his whole life. And he would say all sorts of things like, the Lord's been good to me. And isn't the Lord good? And I love the Lord. And he had all these phrases. And I think on a very sincere level, he believed those things. But he didn't understand the gospel. It was really clear that he didn't understand the gospel. And I wanted him to. But it was beautiful because he realized that when somebody becomes a Christian, understands the gospel, he, he immediately knew that that meant a changed life. For him, it meant reconciling a couple relationships with children of his, adult children of his. It meant other areas of his life. He immediately realized that there are ramifications for grace and faith in a relationship with God. And, and so I think you could put this man I had this conversation with in that category. I, I think he clearly would have said, and I would have even said, sure, seems like this guy's a Christian, until you get three or four or five questions deep, and you realize, no, he's a nice religious guy. And Jesus actually had his strongest, most direct rebukes and corrections and instructions for nice religious people who were missing what it really meant to have a relationship with God. Th that's who this passage is focused on. We've had some great sermons from Jackson and Randy and Kenny and Jason and Darren about Jesus teaching what true discipleship is. That's why we wanted to preach in the Gospel of Luke this time of the year and, and in this season of our church as we're talking about what it means to be true disciples who engage and evangelize and who get established and equipped to engage and evangelize and we're really disciple making disciples for real not for fake because we don't want fake and God hates fake even if it looks really good on the outside 
This passage this morning shifts the direction of this sermon on the plane we've been hearing in Luke chapter 6. And now the focus is on us. I've been amazed as I've studied this passage how I think most of the time the passage we're about to look at gives us permission to examine the fruit in the lives of other people. And I think there is permission in the Bible, just not in this passage. There is, there, there is actually an expectation, an encouragement that we will examine one another's lives. And Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourselves and see if you're found in the faith. He challenges them to do that because he's examined them and he's think there, he thinks there's good reason to examine themselves. And so there's a place for that. But after we've heard, love your enemies, after we've heard in these last several weeks to not be a judgmental person, to take our most severe examination of the sin in our lives first as our consideration where we don't look at the speck in someone else's eye when we've got a plank in our own. Really tough stuff. Love the people who hate your guts is what we're called to. Amazing teaching we've been hearing from Jesus through our preachers. And now in Luke chapter 6, Jesus shifts the focus. And this is not encouraging us to examine one another's fruit, but our own. And so listen to what Jesus says in this amazing passage. Help us, Lord, here, please. Luke 6, verse 43. As we read this, I want you to appreciate the amazing simplicity of these teachings. The difficulty of these teachings, and they are difficult, is not in understanding them. I think a four-year-old can understand what Jesus is saying here quite well. Taking it to heart is another issue, though. Luke 6, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Pretty obvious, right? For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. 
This is not complicated teaching. They're they're really clear and simple illustrations and explanations. And the, the first few verses, verses 43 through 45, make a couple of important points. The first is, our hearts show up in our lives, who we really are. Our heart is the core of our being. It's the essence of who we are. And everything else in our lives is showing what's really going on in our hearts. It's amazing to me how often people get caught doing things wrong on camera more and more these days. And their first response is, that's not me. And it is. On camera, it's you. Now, I know what they're saying. I can relate to what they're saying. There's even some truth in what they're saying. They're saying that deep down, that action, that thing that I did that got me in big trouble by getting caught on camera, otherwise I'd still probably be denying it, but because I'm so badly busted by the video, I'm going to come clean now and own it and say first, that's not me. Well, it is, right? And the truth of that is that there may be something even deeper than what's showing up there, but come on, if we're going to own it, we can't just lead with, that's not me. And, And I think this is a miraculous work of God required for us to get to the point where we're able to own our sin. Our hearts are who we really are. And what's in our hearts shows up The core of our being shows up in our actions. And what's highlighted here is the actions of our words. And that's the second point. Our words really matter. Now, it's hard for us to be honest. It's hard for us to walk in uh, in nakedness before one another. The effect of sin immediately in the Garden of Eden was an instinct to cover up. With our own ridiculous wardrobe we acquire on our own to just cover up. And so much of our lives are spent covering up. One of my favorite lines ever in any song was one of my kids' children's songs that we listened to over and over again when they were little. And it's this, Jesus died so I don't have to hide anymore. I love that line, Jesus died so I don't have to hide anymore. But we hide. It's, it's our instinct. We cover up. We cover up with deception. We cover up with image. We cover up with, with acquiring things that give people impressions about us. And there are lots of enemies of honesty today we need to come to grips with. The first is the delayed effect of our sinful words, our hurtful words, our dishonest actions. Very often, the effect is delayed. I had a great talk with Melissa Schubert about this a few years ago. And every time I talk to Melissa, I, I think better about things. And she said, I think one of the problems is we want to warn people of the, the deadly effect sin has in our lives. But so often, that effect is so delayed that we think that it's not true. Because, you know, we can live in a sinful life for quite a while and the effects don't show up and, and we seem to be doing fine and actually this is quite pleasurable and, and these, these ramifications of my sin aren't true and, and we can give people the impression that there's an immediate effect of our sinful lives when sometimes it takes decades 
Sometimes it'll take getting to heaven and seeing the effects of our sin for us to really see the effects of our sin. But what we need to do here is trust God when he says that sin always has a devastating effect. A self-destructive, other-destructive, God-dishonoring effect every time, even if done in private, even if done internally. There's always a devastating effect, and we need to take God at his word because the ramifications of sin often don't show up for a very long time, if at all, in this life. I bet gang, mafia gang leaders, I, I, I bet Al Capone went to his grave thinking he had a really good life and, and generally was a good guy. I, I, we just have this incredible ability for self-deception, not realizing the ramifications of our own sin. There's, there's a delayed effect. There's self-deception. There's a denial of it, even when it's obvious. I want to write a book on the consequences of sin one day. And I'm not even sure exactly what I'm going to write in a book, but I know the title. It's going to be, How's That Working Out For You? <laughs> Isn't it amazing when in our own lives, in the lives of other people we love and observe, we're seeing sin destroy them, but they just keep managing to convince themselves that they're on a good path. And for all the times I've sinned, I'm fi- I've been sinning for 57 years, you'd figure I- I'd be so completely past it by now, but no, I-, I can convince myself that this is a legitimate option right now to use my words in this way. Right? To create an impression that isn't true. To, to just be, let sloth take over when I know someone needs my attention. We're, we're amazingly good at this. We deny it. And, and maybe the biggest enemy of, of honesty and integrity these days is distraction. We don't even get to an awareness of our sin of our hypocrisy, of the disconnect here, because we're scrolling through TikTok, right? Because we're just mindlessly doing things all the time that are just so distracting. And maybe my biggest concern about this generation is distraction. It's doing anything to ignore things that may be difficult to take to heart. Distraction and denial and dilution. We're just so diluted in the things we give ourselves to. And what Jesus is saying to us here is our hearts are going to show up in our lives. It may take a while. We may be hard at convincing, but it's going to show up and our words really matter and wounds are created by words. James couldn't be clearer about this. Would you go to James chapter 3, please? And and listen to what he says here about words and the effect that words have in our lives. In James chapter 3. Listen to what it says. It'd be embarrassing if the preacher couldn't find the passage, wouldn't it? Um, James 3. This is what he says. Three one. 
Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways, and anyone who does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and are driven by strong winds and are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is just building on the teaching of Jesus here. He wants us to realize that our words matter. They can have a devastating effect. Words can wound. And I know this deeply. I know this deeply. I'm someone who can completely relate to the Apostle Peter. Peter said some things that were grand slam home runs. Like, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father who's in heaven. And just a couple verses later, Peter says, no way you're going to a cross. And Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. Wow. You got to appreciate Peter swung the bat verbally. And he struck out plenty too. Do you know, I don't think there's ever been a social interaction I've been at for any length of time where I didn't wake up the next morning and think of something I said and just cringe. And say, Don, did you hear that? And she'll say, yeah, heard it. Or, no, don't worry about it. But usually it's, yeah, heard it. Heard that. Might want to make a phone call today. Yeah, good idea. And and so I can, the words are powerful things. They can be used to bless and encourage, feed people and and bring people to a, a renewed sense of understanding. Words can be used by God for things that are so wonderful and awesome that we can't even begin to imagine how he can use those things, but they can be used to hurt and wound and burden and defeat and discourage. Words matter. We have friends at name Uzinski who are just dear people. They speak at marriage conferences, and they'll be the first to tell you that often their example does not match their messages that they'll be preaching at family life conferences. And, and one of the things they've done in their marriage that Don and I really picked up on is they will often say they're both very verbal, and, and they'll both say things that immediately they're like, oh, didn't want to hit send on that one. But you know what they've done in their marriage? They'll start saying to each other, oh, you want to take that one back? 
And they'll say, yeah, I do. Thank you. There's grace, right? Words can hurt, but as God's people, we've got to have grace. He's got it for us, and we need to have it for each other. Even and especially in our closest relationships where wounds tend to hurt the most. We've got to have grace, and so there's grace in this, but we've also got to realize the devastating effects that our words have. And we've got to listen to these examples. There's a goodness to us that needs to be showing up in our words. Or there's a badness to us that will be showing up in our words. I love that word good. It's such a simple word. We actually tend not to use it for people because we know of Jesus saying, oh, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. And so that means humans can't be good. Well, yes and no. The truth is, God's goodness means all he is and all he does is always worthy of complete approval. There's a perfection to God, a wholeness to God, an integrity to God. All he is and all he does is always completely sound and filled with wholeness and integrity. I love that word wholesome, too. You know, that's probably the word I think of most for my wife, Donna. She's good, and you know one of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. So I guess who God is can start showing up in our lives through the Spirit's work. And Donna is a wholesome person. She's got integrity. There's a goodness to her, a reliability. And so many of you I'm looking at, I would describe that way as well. It, and th there's something that starts with God called goodness, and then it takes over in the lives of his people, and it starts showing up in our words, in our actions. And there's a goodness and a trustworthiness that flows from this. Badness is the opposite of those things. And so Jesus is saying, what kind of tree are you? Because what you treasure in your heart will end up showing up in your words and in your life. And then Jesus turns it to his words and our response to them in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now what's important here is to realize that Jesus sees himself as the Lord, the kurios, the, the one who rules and reigns, the one to whom we submit, the one who is our master and our king. He is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and he deserves all our allegiance and all our devotion and all our obedience. Jesus agrees with that, and he thinks we should call him Lord, Lord, and emphasize it by saying it twice. But he says if you're going to say that you need to act in a way that's consistent with those words it's just amazing Jesus says here's the test if you really love me loving Jesus being loved by him first and loving him in response is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple but Jesus says here's the test if that's true or not you'll sing really loud in worship time, or be incredibly demonstrative in worship time, or uh, you'll, you'll know all the right answers. You'll know where to find places in the Bible. You'll be able to pray really impressive King James-sounding prayers. No, none of those things. Jesus says, if you love me, what does he say? You'll do what I say. Thanks, Kent. Yeah. You'll do my word. You'll obey my commandments. It's just amazingly simple, isn't it? And it makes perfect sense. If he's Lord, well, you do what he says. And if he's God, which he is, he's Lord. And if he's Lord, we say, yes, sir. 
when we hear him say something. The first thing, I guess, is that we actually listen. We pay attention to his words, which is the whole counsel of God's word, not just the red letters, which I think was a really bad idea in the first place. Because it's all God's word. You ever think about the fact that the words of God the Father don't get red letters? What's up with that? Or the Spirit. It helps you find things, I guess, but I think it's ultimately a bad idea because it's all God's Word. And, and so we got to be people of the Word. That's why we've got our Bibles here, and we're digging in every week and all the time, right? But Jesus is the Lord. He is. He not only is the one who speaks the truth of God, he's the one we're told who is the truth of God. He is the way. He is the life. He is the truth. And so that means we listen to him. When we really want answers to the most important questions of life, he's our authority, he's our source. And every other so-called authority is judged in light of the word of God, the ultimate authority. And then we become people who know, love, and obey God's word. It's not complicated. It's, I'm teaching the same thing they are over there this morning to the kids. <laughs> in some ways, we never need anything more than what they're... You know, the Sunday school answer is actually the right one. Usually, if it includes Jesus and the Word of God, don't, don't be put off by the simplicity of the Bible and the Christian faith and Jesus and the Word of God. And so when we go to Jesus, we hear him, we listen to him, we pay attention, and we do what he says. And as the church, one of our primary callings is to be a pillar and buttress of truth, to believe his Word and proclaim his Word as his ambassadors and representatives. Now, we obey his word, why? Because of who he is, first and foremost. Because of his character. Before we ever get to the practical ramifications or, or the consequences, we just obey him because of who he is. We don't say, well, I'm just not sure. I did a cost-benefit analysis of obeying you, and I'm not seeing how it's going to work out to my advantage, so I'm not sure about this. No, we obey him because of who he is, because of his character. But we obey him because of who we are, made in his image and remade in the image of Christ now as his people. And so we obey him because of who he is and we, be, we obey him because of who we are. But Jesus here is actually not pointing to those things first and foremost. They're assumed, but what he emphasizes here is the consequences of disobedience and the rewards of obedience. The Bible has a lot to say about rewards of obedience and devastating ramifications of disobedience. A lot of disobedience. It has a lot to say about those things. And because we understand the gospel of grace doesn't mean there aren't very real, wonderful benefits of walking in God's ways and devastating ramifications of not walking in his ways. We go to Jesus and we listen to him and we obey him and we recognize that there is reward and punishment in the Bible. It's all grace, but Jesus wants us to know that it's not sin is sin, it's all the same to God. Sin all the more so grace may abound. No. What we do with our words and our eyes and our hearts and our bodies and everything God's given us really matters. Disciples realize this, and we live lives accordingly. There are consequences in life, and this isn't popular these days. I heard a story about a woman who... Uh, her, her little boy was on one of those horses. Did they even have those horses you put money in? Nah, probably not. They were every, out at every store. You get these horses, and I have no idea why people wanted to get thrown around, but kids loved them. I loved them. Mom, please, can I have a quarter? 
<laughs> Ride the horse and get thrown around. And, and um, those, you know, anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they, they have them in Southern California. I've never seen them. Okay, all right. So these horses, this kid was on this horse, and it was Christmas time, and there was a Santa Claus outside, and, and it was Christmas, and this kid's on this little horse, and he wouldn't get off. And other kids wanted to get on the horse, and he just would not get off the horse, even after it stopped running. And the mother kept saying, I'll get you this for Christmas if you'll get off the horse, and I'll get you this. And she kept offering him all of these rewards if he would get off the horse. And finally, Santa who was standing there, it had it. And he goes over and he just bends down and he whispers in the little kid's ear and the kid gets off the horse immediately. And the mother said, what did you promise to bring him? And he said, the worst spanking of his life. If he didn't get off the horse. And there's really something to that, right? It's not how we think anymore, right? That, that there should be consequences, that there's actually a place for appropriate punishment, right? And consequences and ramifications. It's a different time we live in. Hey, did you know, remember, who remembers the old Smokey the Bear? Yeah, yeah. What was his slogan? Who did that? Who was that? Was that you, Larry? Can we just hear you? That's excellent, Larry. That's great. Right, right. Only you. And what was his posture? What was he doing every time you saw him? Yeah, there you go. Went with the slogan, didn't it? Only you, Larry, can prevent forest fires, right? I mean, this is the old Smokey. Look at it. Look at it. Look at his face. He ain't playing. Smokey ain't playing. No, 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 no. Do you know Smokey's had a complete makeover? He has, to, to fit our current times. Let, let me tell you about it. What happened, I'm going to show it to you in a bit, but not yet, not yet. There's been a makeover of Smokey. They realized this wasn't working anymore. Do you know who sets forest fires? 17 to 24-year-olds, primarily. I mean, it's people who are having their gender revealed, too. But it's, it's, most, it's mostly... It's mostly 17 to 24-year-olds, so they're targeting them, and he's had a complete makeover. He's not pointing at you, telling you about your responsibility anymore. Look at the new Smokey. Listen to the marketing expert who designed the new Smokey. I'm for real here. I'm not kidding. Here's what he says. The hugs are part of the decision to turn Smokey into a character who's depicted as rewarding people rather than entreating them or admonishing them to take personal responsibility. It's moving the tone away from sober, and then check this out, which doesn't resonate with young people <laughs> while maintaining the seriousness of the issue. Smokey is changing from a teacher or authority figure into a paragon of positive reinforcement. The, heart, the, the bear hug campaign is refreshing the brand and making him seem more lovable, more relevant. We didn't want him to be mad at mankind for starting forest fires. Now, I am all for, and God is all for positive reinforcement. I'm telling you, he is. 
God is a hugger God. He brings us to himself like the prodigal son's father and runs down the road. He's a God of compassion and affection and reception and open-armed love. But he's also a God who commands. He's also a God we should fear. I'm all for the hugs, but do we have categories anymore for that? Only you. It's on you, dog. We've got to be able to take it to heart. Are we a people who will always diffuse and excuse and deflect and disregard and blame? If only my parents were better. If only my school system, if, if only that didn't happen to me or that didn't happen to me or if I didn't have this, this thing that I always battle that I just seem to be stuck with, we can just never own it. And Jesus is saying the ramifications for our sin, that it makes a difference. Listen to Ann Sullivan, the woman who, who basically raised uh, Helen Keller, thank you. Listen to what she said. I have thought about it a great deal. And the more I think, the more I'm certain that obedience is the gateway through which knowledge, yes, and love too, enter the mind of a child. I mean, Jesus says, if you want to know whether my words come from heaven or not, Put him into practice. You know that old hymn? Uh, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Yeah, thanks, Ken. Yeah, um, yeah when we put into practice what he says, even when we're not sure we like this or it's going to work out to our good, we put it into practice. We say, oh, he knows what he's talking about. He really does. Jesus really knows what he's talking about. I, I think I want to obey him, and it becomes easier over time. There's a place, yes, with grace for fear and conviction and repentance and obedience. Or else we'll end up living like practical atheists, have all the things right in our doctrinal statements, but live like hell. And maybe heading there as well. And we live in an irreverent age where all it takes to seem like a do-gooder is to be a little bit less evil than the world. Let's not set our standards by how the world happens to be right now. Let's realize that there's an awesome difference between a child of light and a child of darkness. And becoming a Christian means dying with Christ. The old man must die if the new man is to be raised, Jesus says. And that's what it means to be crucified with him. He says unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. And so we're able to come clean with our sins, realizing that we trust him. We take him at his word. We believe him to be who he says he is. And we follow him all our days and believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. True repentance, then, brings a change of behavior. These two contrasting ways of building your life, either one on a solid foundation of God's word and obedience to it, or one, a foundation not based on that, which is sure to crumble and fail when hard time comes, and especially when judgment day comes. There's both a very real present day application of this and a very real future judgment day application of this as well. What are you building your life on? What are you basing your life on? Where are you going for life? Dave Talley and I get together frequently and we want to really find out how each other's hearts are and the question through the years we've started asking that he started asking is Eric is there anything giving you too much life 
that shouldn't right now? (laughs) It's a great question. Where's your light? What's your source of life? Where are you going for life? Is it Jesus and his ways? Or is it Eric and his ways? Or the world and its ways? It's a very clear and simple choice here Jesus is laying out. But as we all know, it's much easier said than done. But true repentance, getting the end of ourselves, and true trust in Jesus, receiving his love and his forgiveness changes everything. And it frees us up to live in obedience to him with reckless abandon, increasingly trusting him and deepening faith because he keeps validating his truthfulness. You know, when you're struggling in your faith, don't, don't ask about the ontological existence for, for God and don't, don't ask about all these different things, but just keep saying, what isn't true about Jesus? Have I found anything in him that isn't true? What isn't true about Jesus? That's at the heart of our faith. Well, who is he? And is he worthy of my whole life? And I'm telling you, he is. He is. He alone is able to satisfy. He alone brings freedom. It's so easy to let go of our sin and focus on what we're letting go and live our lives like this instead of turning our back on it truly, which is what repentance is, and moving toward God and the rewards and pleasures of knowing and trusting and following him. And it can't compare all the sin, all the suffering, all the things disconnected to God, living disconnected from the things of heaven and eternity, can't satisfy. They'll never provide for you what they promise to provide. Jesus will. God promises you that. I promise Jesus will. He doesn't fail. Jesus really is who he says he is. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And don't focus then on what you have to give up in following him. Feel the freedom of knowing him as he is. The one true God. I remember I was preaching at a conference in Cincinnati years ago. With lots of thousands of people at this conference in Cincinnati. And I'm preaching and I end a sermon with a great story from my life that I had experienced. It was a great, it really, it was, it was a great story. But as I'm telling the story, I, I just had this sense that the ending as it was wasn't quite good enough. So I just tweaked the end of the story a bit to make it a bit better than it actually was. And the second I did it, I felt conviction. And I knew I had just lied to thousands of people. And I was the preacher. (laughs) My Bible open in front of them. (gasps) And my heart sank and I concluded the sermon and I walked back to my hotel room and I thought, Eric, what did you do? And I knew I needed to tell everybody and confess that I had done that the next night. And I come up with a thousand reasons not to do it. Well, everything else in the story was true. It'll distract them from all the other true things I've said and call those things in the question. And it'll just get all the attention. And I don't want that. And then I was actually concerned. You know what? Everybody will say, oh, dude, you're so authentic. I love it. And, and, and I'll get affirmation for lying. Because I'm so real about dishonest, how dishonest I was. And I don't want that reaction either. I, and, and so I came up with all these excuses, but the next night I got up and I started my next talk with a confession. And in the middle of it, I saw two guys get up and look at me and walk out in anger. Yo! But I gotta tell you, there was this relief even as I began my confession. And it was an overwhelming response of grace. 
And I'm not saying it was easy at all. And I'm not saying that even years later, I would run into people and say, where do I know you? Oh, you spoke at the Cincinnati conference. That's right. And, and I, they'd, they'd go, oh, right. And I'd say, yeah, I'm the guy who lied, right? That's all you remember from the whole thing. I said lots of other good things too, right? You know, preachers have this horrible expression. Uh, don't let the truth ruin a good story. It's evil. It is. And, and so for you, I haven't had anybody say, oh, yeah. You're the Although some of my friends heard about it and said, dude, what in the world? And, and so, yeah, it was hard, but it was freeing. And I would hate to walk around the rest of my life with that embedded in my story, doing all these gymnastics to act like it wasn't a big deal or I could ignore it or I didn't have to pay any attention to it or God doesn't care or he's forgiving. And so, so we've, but when there's such freedom and confession of sin. See, the Lord's Supper that we're about, oh, we're not, that's right. Um, the Lord's Supper that we're about to take, and if you, have, if you don't have your elements, I think the ushers will be ready to bring. Just raise your hand, and if you have the, need the elements, didn't get them on the way in like I missed on the way in, just raise your hand and they'll bring them to you. But we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and, and again, I, there's a beautiful simplicity to the gospel. This couldn't be more simple. You know, you peel off this first layer here, and you get this so-called bread, and you... You appreciate it for what it is. It doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be fancy. It's a symbol of Jesus' body. And then you peel off that second layer and you, you get this juice, which is this symbol of Jesus' blood. And Jesus says, when you get together, I want you to take some bread and take some wine and, and consume it together and simply remember what I did. I gave you life in giving my life. I gave you forgiveness in my obedience and my sacrificial death. I gave you righteousness in my perfect righteousness. And it's just giving up on yourself and trusting me. And so you don't put your focus, your gaze on yourself, although he's calling us to introspect in this passage. Like one great preacher said, for every one look at ourselves, we need to take 10 looks at Christ. And then we won't have to look at ourselves very long to see who we really are because he's the one who helps us see us for who we are. Whether good or bad. And the good news is it's not our goodness that makes us good, it's his. And then when we experience his love and his goodness given to us, we're freed to live lives that seem like craziness to a world that isn't free, that's still covering up. 